It's Thursday, December 5th, 2013. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I am your host, Folk Runyon. And tonight, I'm going to read chapters from the essay, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, by rocket scientist and magician John Whiteside Parsons. Now, along with being one of the original founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, in fact, it's sometimes called the Jack Parsons Laboratory, he was a developer of solid rocket fuel that was essential to our space program. Parsons was also an occultist and a magician. He ran an OTO lodge and he was a dedicated follower of Aleister Crowley. Now, Jack Parsons' colorful but tragically short life has been celebrated in the recent books Sex and Rockets by someone who calls himself John Carter and Strange Angel by George Pendle. Also, a very good stage play from the Caltech Drama Department called Pasadena Babylon by George Morgan. Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword was written at the end of World War II. It is a remarkable prediction of liberalism, civil rights, and women's rights. In fact, we might say that Parsons was the forerunner of feminist neo-paganism in California. His views on the mystical and spiritual superiority of women were much different than those of his mentor, Aleister Crowley. Now, we received Jack Parsons' papers from Gerald York in 1972. The first publication of Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword was my edited version published in our journal, The Seventh Ray, in 1976 through 1978. The essay has been subsequently published by the OTO in 1990 and again in 2001. It is still in print and available from Amazon. Now, we did a previous Hermetic Hour broadcast on Jack Parsons, which you can find in our podcast archives. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand and enjoy the writings of this rocket scientist, especially when he has a crater on the moon named after him. On the dark side, of course. So... Let me say a few things about the life and times of Jack Parsons just before we get into this, because I think you need to know uh, a few things, uh, a few terms and what have you, defined in the context of their times to understand this a bit better. In the first place, Jack Parsons was not a liberal in the sense that we think of a liberal today. He was more of what we would today would call a libertarian. Uh, I'm not going to say that that what we call liberalism today um, wasn't uh, 
wasn't as collectivist uh, in Jack's time as it is now, but in a sense it was, because liberalism uh, in his day still was concerned with human freedom and with human uh, with the rights of the individual, and it hadn't become as uh, as captured by the uh, by the collectivists as it has been today. So Jack, he, he, when you understand when he talks about liberalism, he's talking about liberalism in uh, what would in today's sense be libertarianism. You need to understand that. Um, Jack Parsons. Uh, was not a communist, although uh, his several of his friends were people he worked with. In fact, his uh, his immediate superior, Frank Molina, uh, at JPL, was a communist. And, and as soon as the Cold War got started, uh, Frank had to decamp for France because uh, he was no longer welcome in this country. Uh, but Jack uh, had a number of communists for friends, and he sympathized with the way uh, they were persecuted during the McCarthy uh, era. And the McCarthy era was uh, getting underway right before Jack blew himself up in the uh, in the uh, middle 1950s. And the uh, he was very much upset by that, although he himself, as I say, was was not a communist. Um, I'm going to kind of remind you that the 1950s, before the Civil Rights Movement got started and before the uh, emancipation of women, uh, women's right to work, before we, we had the so-called sexual revolution in the 1960s, before that, this country was a great deal more controlled and and... Um, people lived in fear. They lived in fear of the Russians, the atomic bomb, and they they lived in fear of not being considered conformist. In those days, you could you could actually be put into a mental institution uh, if you were a bit strange or if you were a bit eccentric. Uh, people people struggled to conform. They were afraid. They were looking over their shoulders and wondering uh, who was watching them. And and uh, there was no sexual... Homosexuality was considered a crime. And uh, it, it was a different time. And so Jack was writing um, from a uh, standpoint of a liberated... Uh, um, sexually liberated uh, and uh, artistically inclined uh, individual who who was very very much upset by the way that what he saw happening to this country during the Cold War. Well, we had of course a respite from that after the Vietnam War. We and the psychedelic uh, era and the, uh, and the sexual revolution and all that. We we, we thought we were. We were, for a while there, it seemed like we were actually having, uh, getting away from all of that. Uh, however, uh, by the mid-1970s, it was starting again. Uh, the, the, we were on our way to, uh, you know, to, to recover the, uh, the paranoia of, of the 50s in, in a different way, but still it was the same. And today, of course, following 9-11 and...
and the Patriot Act and, and all this talk about surveillance and everything else. What Jack has to say in this essay is, I think, just as valid today as it was back when he wrote it. But I want you to be aware of the times in which he was writing. Now, this was our introduction. This was the introduction I wrote uh, to our publication in 1976. Frater Balerian, or Frater 210, as he was sometimes called, was commander of the Agape Lodge of the OTO in Pasadena, California in the late 1940s. He was the founder of the Abbey of Philema at 1003 South Orange Grove Boulevard. A distinguished Caltech scientist, he was one of the original founders of the Pasadena Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he pioneered in the development of exotic fuels. In 1946, Jack, Frater 210, lost his and the OTO's assets in a business deal concocted by a science fiction writer who went on to become one of the most successful gurus in modern times. And the OTO went into eclipse and Frater Bellarian brooded on his folly. In 1952, at the age of 38, he was killed in a laboratory explosion. Now, Jack did leave a legacy for his successors in the magical art, his papers. Longest and most significant of his essays is the treatise on political, spiritual, and sexual liberty called Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. The first part, A Sword is Drawn, may not seem very occult to some readers, whereas succeeding installments certainly will. But Frater Balerian is laying a very necessary philosophical foundation at the beginning, and we urge readers to study it carefully. Magic is nothing other than the growth of the human spirit. Without liberty, there is no magic. During the recent permissive period that accompanied our most unpopular war, the McCarthyism and sexual blue laws of the 1950s seemed forever buried in the past. Now, as such repressive attitudes are again cycling into fashion, this essay, written 30 years ago, and remember this is 1976, seems as up-to-date as tomorrow's headlines. Jack never took the time to rework his material. He did intend to see his essays published someday and probably would have rewritten and edited them had he lived. With this in mind, I have tried to put myself in his position, or at least imagine him looking over my shoulder while I wielded the blue pencil. Because of this rough draft situation, considerable editing has been necessary, not only in the deletion of redundant passages, but also in the cutting of dubious sequences. For example, a speculation on reviving the Code Duello in the current installment, along with a good deal of polishing up. Now, as far as we know, this is the first publication of Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. 
The first section, a sword is drawn, will be followed by the sword and the serpent, then the sword and the spirit, and then the woman girt with the sword. In future issues of the Seventh Ray, the last installment featuring Frater Balerian's views on mystic femininity will be amazing to contemporary neo-pagans. Freedom is our esoteric contribution to America's bicentennial year. That was 1976. By the way, the reason why I cut out the speculation on the Code Duello, which I, I just, I'm curious as to whether I, uh, it, it, uh, uh, Bill Breeze left it in in the OTO version. Maybe he did. The reason why I cut it out is because Code Duello had to be outlawed all over the world because it was uh, there was a whole professional a class of professional assassins that were that were using the Code Duello to as you know legalized murder and it really had to be it, it had to, and I didn't want I thought Jack would have realized that if he went over and edited the thing again so I cut it out. Now let's get to. Um, the author's preface. And the author's preface, by the way, was written in 1950, and but the essay was written in 1946, so be aware of that. Since I first wrote this essay in 1946, some of the more ominous predictions have been fulfilled. Public employees have been subjected to the indignity of loyalty oaths and the ignominy of loyalty purges and members of the United States Senate moving under the cloak of immunity and the excuse of emergency have made a joke of justice and a mockery of privacy. Constitutional immunity and legal procedures have been constantly violated, and that which was once would have been an outrage in America is today refused even a review by the Supreme Court. The golden voice of Social Security of socialized this and socialized that with its attendant confiscatory taxation and intrusion of individual liberty is everywhere raised and everywhere heated. England has crept under the aegis of a regime synonymous with a total regimentation. Austria, Hungary, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia have fallen victims to communism, while the United States makes deals with the corrupt dictatorships of Argentina and Spain. As I write this, the United States Senate is pursuing a burlesque investigation into the sphere of private sexual morals, which will accomplish nothing except to bring pain and sorrow to many innocent persons. The inertia and acquiescence which allows the suspension of our liberties would once have been unthinkable. The present ignorance and indifference is appalling. The little that is worthwhile in our civilization and culture is made possible by the few who are capable of creative thinking and independent action, grudgingly assisted by the rest. When the majority of men surrender their freedom, barbarism is near, and when the creative minority surrender it, the dark age has arrived. And even the word liberalism is suspect when its adherents support Russian imperialism. Humanism has now become a front for the new social form of Christian morality. Science that was going to save the world back in H.G. Wells' time is regimented, straitjacketed, and sacred. 
Its universal language is diminished to one word, security. In this 1950 view, some of my more hopeful utterances may appear almost naive. However, I was never so naive as to believe that freedom in any full sense of the word is possible for more than a few. But I have believed and do still hold that these few, by self-sacrifice, wisdom, courage, and continuous effort, can achieve and maintain a free world. The labor is heroic, but it can be done by example and by education, and such was the faith that built America, a faith that America has surrendered. I call upon America to renew this faith before she perishes. We are one nation, but we are also one world, and the soul of the slums looks out of the eyes of Wall Street, and the fate of a Chinese coolie determines the destiny of America. Without suppressing our own, we cannot murder our brothers. Without human dignity or, 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 or will, we will fall together as animals back into the jungle. In this very late hour, it is with solutions that we must be primarily concerned. We seem to be living in a nation that simply does not know what freedom is. We believe that it is a word, a piece of paper, something that, far more than that, it is to the definition of freedom, to its understanding, in order that it may be attained and defended, that this essay is devoted. I need not add that freedom is dangerous, but it is hardly possible that we are all cowards. And the first chapter, written in 1946, is A Sword is Drawn. For a number of centuries, society accepted the proposition that certain men were created to be slaves. Their natural function was to serve priests, kings, and nobles, men of substance and property who were appointed slave masters by Almighty God, and this system was reinforced by the established doctrine that all men and women are owned in mind by the church and in body by the state. And this convenient situation was supported by the authority of social morality, religion, and even philosophy. Against this doctrine, some 200 years ago, rose the most astonishing heresy the world has yet seen, the principle of liberalism. In essence, the principle stated that all men are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights which belong to every man at his birthright. And this idea appealed to certain intractable spirits, heretics, atheists, and revolutionaries, and has since made some headway in spite of the opposition of the majority of organized society. As a slogan, however, it has become so popular that it is rendered unwilling lip service by all. All the major states, and yet it is still so distasteful to persons in authority 
that it is nowhere embodied as a fundamental law, and it is constantly violated in letter and in spirit by every trick of bigotry and reaction. Further, absolutist and totalitarian groups of the most vicious nature use liberalism as a cloak under which they move to reestablish tyrannies and to extinguish the liberty of all who oppose them. Thus, religious groups seek to abrogate freedom of art, speech, and the press. Reactionaries move to suppress labor, communists to establish dictatorships, and all in the name of freedom because of the peculiar definition of freedom used by some of these camouflaged tyrants, it seems necessary to redefine freedom in the terms understood by Voltaire, Paine, Washington, Jefferson, and Emerson. Freedom is a two-edged sword, of which one edge is liberty and the other responsibility. Both edges are exceedingly sharp, and the weapon is not suited to casual, cowardly, or treacherous hands. Since all tyrannies are based on dogma, and since all dogmas are based on lies, it behooves us to look beyond them for truth. And freedom will not be far away, and yet the truth is that we know nothing. Objectively, we know nothing at all. Any system of intellectual thought, whether it be science, logic, religion, or philosophy, is based on certain fundamental ideas or axioms which are assumed, but which cannot be proven. This is the grave of all positivism. We assume, but we do not know, that there is a real and objective world outside our own mind. Ultimately, we do not know what we are or what the world is. Further, if there is a real world apart from ourselves, we cannot know what it really is. All we know is what we perceive it to be. And all that we perceive is conveyed by our senses and interpreted by our brains. However fine, exact, or delicate our scientific instruments may be, their data is still filtered through our senses and interpreted by our brain. However useful, spectacular, or necessary our ideas and experiments may be, they still have little to do with absolute truth. Such a thing can only exist for the individual according to his whim or his inner perception of his own truth in being. The witches and devils of the Middle Ages were real by our own standards. Reputable and responsible persons believed in them. They were seen, their effects observed, and they accounted for a large body of otherwise inexplicable phenomena. Their existence was accepted without question by the majority of men, great and humble, from this majority, there was not and still is not any appeal. Yet we do not believe in these things today. We believe in other things similarly explaining the same phenomenon. Tomorrow we will believe in still other things. We believe, but we do not know. All of our deductions, for example, the theory of gravity, are based upon observed statistics on tendencies observed to occur in a certain way. 
And even if our observations are correct, we still do not know why these things happen, or if they have always happened, or if they will continue to happen, and our theories are only assumptions, however reasonable they may seem. There is a type of truth that is based on experience. We know that we feel hot or hungry or in love. And these feelings cannot be conveyed to anyone who has not experienced them. We can describe them in terms of similar feelings experienced by someone else, analyzing their cost and effect, according to mutually acceptable theories, but that someone else will never really know what your feeling is like. The above may be negative considerations, but within their limits we can deduce positive principles. One, whatever the universe is, we are either all or a part of it, by virtue of our consciousness, but we do not know which. Two, no philosophy, scientific theory, religion, or system of thought can be absolute and infallible. They are relative only. One man's opinion is just as good as another's. Three, there is no absolute justification for emphasizing one individual theory or way of life over another. Four, every man has the right to his own opinion and his own way of life, and there is no system of human thought which can successfully refute this thesis. So much for positivism, but other problems still remain. There is necessity, expediency, and convenience. And if these are illusions, they are very popular, and it is as usual, and it is usual to consider them. And we might say that politics is concerned with necessity and expediency, where science is concerned with convenience. And this is not intended to discredit science and reason in their proper spheres. Reason is one of our greatest gifts. The power that differentiates us from the animals. And science is our greatest tool. Our best hope for building a genuine civilization. It is curious that this modern truism appears in this system of reasoning as a concession. In spite of its inestimable value, science is a tool and has nothing to do with ultimate truth. Herein is the danger of science. As a tool, it is so valuable, so useful, and so irresistible that we incline to regard it as an arbiter of the absolute, giving final and irrefutable, irrefutable pronouncement to all things. Now this is exactly the position that the pedant the dogmatist and the dialectical materialist would have us take. And then posing as a scientist or propounding scientific doctrines, he can persuade us to accept his values and obey his orders. Today, science must forever be free to overthrow its yesterdays. Otherwise, it will degenerate into ancestor worship. It is necessary that we defend freedom unless we all wish to be slaves. 
It is expedient that we achieve brotherhood unless we all desire destruction. And it is convenient that we grant others the right to their own opinions and lifestyles in order to maintain our own. The intelligent individual will not base his conduct on an arbitrary or absolute concept of right and wrong. It may be argued that all motives and all actions are selfish, since they are all intended to satisfy some requirement of the ego. Perhaps this is true of self-sacrifice, abnegation, and the highest altruism. We engage in them in order to satisfy ourselves by attaining some object, however intangible it may be. The ego can be very broad. A man may include the whole world as part of his ego, and thus set out to redeem or save it. For no other reason than the pleasure of personal accomplishment, such a man, far from being unselfish, is extremely egotistical. The artist, devoted to the production of pure beauty, is so dedicated because of his need and his nature. At least such egotism is not petty. Motives of family love and patriotism are rooted in biology, and this does not necessarily detract from such actions and motives. Everything in nature is beautiful, and it is less, no less beautiful because it is understood. However, the unenlightened man will assign arbitrary values to all things in order to protect and justify his own positivism. His morals are based on things he wishes were true, and, or which someone else uh, wishes were true, and his philosophy pays no attention to the relative facts or realities, and yet in his life he must deal with them. He is consequently involved in a constant round of pretenses and evasions. The enlightened liberal needs no such justification. He will realize and accept his inherent selfishness and the inherent selfishness of all men. He will understand living as a technique, the technique of getting what he wants on the terms that he wants. And such is the case with freedom. If we abrogate another's freedom to gain our own ends, our own freedom is thereby jeopardized. That is the cost. And if we wish to assure our own freedom, we must assure all men's freedom. That is the technique. If a liberal were to develop two personalities, and one of these personalities were to establish a benevolent dictatorship, while the other continued his liberal activities, it would only be a matter of time before he destroyed himself. The restriction of others' freedom is ultimately self-enslavement and suicide. The dictator is the most abject of all slaves. These simple considerations are the logical basis of the philosophy of liberalism. From such considerations and from many more, the fundamental principles of liberalism arose as a code of rights, basic in nature and clear beyond misconception. This code must be the law, beyond the law. 
the ultimate expression of the dignity and inviolability of the individual. It must be above compromise by courts and lawyers, beyond this whim of the populace and the treachery of the demagogue. It must be the epitome of man's aspiration toward liberty and self-determination. A canon so sacred that its violation by a state a group of individuals is treason and sacrilege. The Bill of Rights in the American Constitution was a step in this direction, and its study will indicate further development. In a world so threatened by positivism and paternalism, this document is limited in both scope and application. It permits such violations of liberty as the late National Prohibition Act, the draft law, the closed shop, the man act, the censorship laws, anti-firearms laws, and racial discrimination. It has been said with justification that the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means. A document so fundamental as the Bill of Rights cannot be jeopardized by arbitrary interpretations. It should need no interpretations. It must apply equally to the national state and federal federated states, the counties, the municipalities, the official agencies, and the, and the private citizen within their province. It must apply in such a way that the individual or minority needs no recourse to elaborate. Lengthy and costly proceedings in order to protect these rights. It is the duty of the state to provide this recourse to all alike. Freedom cannot be subject to arbitrary interpretation and misrepresentation. It must plainly include freedom from persecution on moral, political, economic, racial, social, or religious grounds. No man, no group, and no nation has the right to any man's individual freedom. No matter how pure the motive, no matter how great the emergency, no, how high the principle, such action is tyranny and is never justified. The question is, are we able to face the consequence of democracy? It is not sufficient that freedom be assured by purely negative means. Freedom is meaningless where, it is, where its expression is controlled by powerful groups such as the press, the radio, the motion picture industry, the churches, the politic politicians, and the capitalists. Freedom must be ensured. It can only be ensured by the allegiance to the principle that man has certain inalienable rights, among which are the rights to live his private life insofar as it concerns only himself as he sees fit, to eat and drink, to dress, live, and travel as and where and how he will, to express himself, to speak, write, print, experiment, and otherwise create as he desires, to work as he chooses, when he chooses and where he chooses at a reasonable and commiserate wage and to, and to purchase his food, shelter, medical and social needs and all other services and commodities necessary to his existence and self-expression at a reasonable and, commis and commiserate price and to have a decent environment and upbringing during his childhood until he reaches a responsible majority to love as he desires, where, how, and with whom he chooses, and in accordance only with the desires of himself and his partner, and to the positive opportunity to enjoy these rights as he sees fit without obstruction 
on the one hand or compulsion on the other. And finally, in order to protect his person and property and his rights, he should have the right to kill an aggressor if necessary. And this is the purpose of the right to keep and bear arms. These rights must be counterbalanced by certain responsibilities. The liberal accepting them must guarantee these rights to all others at all times, regardless of the personal feelings or interests. He must work to establish and protect them, to live in a manner commiserate with them, and be prepared to defend them with his life. And he must refuse allegiance to any state or organization which denies these rights, and he should aid in, aid and encourage all who, without qualification or equivocation, endorse them. He must refuse to compromise these principles on any issue or for any reason. Nothing short of such a commitment will assure the survival of liberty or of democracy or of society itself. Liberalism is not only a code for individuals and their state, it is the only possible basis of a future international civilization. However, these principles will only be rhetoric unless they are revered and protected by those who, to whom they apply, and they must be interpreted and applied with understanding and with sympathy, with humor and with tolerance. Pretentiousness, sentimentality, or hysterics are not needed in their application or in their defense. Insufferable demagogues of high principle are sufficiently numerous as it is. It must also be understood that we cannot force man's, man's rights upon him. Man has a right to be a slave if he so desires, and he does not assert and defend his rights. He deserves slavery. The person who is tyrannized by his family, his peers, by public opinion or slave morality, providing he is free to leave their influence or to challenge it, is worthy of his condition. His protestations are those of the hypocrite. Freedom, like charity, begins at home. No man is worthy to fight in the cause of freedom unless he has conquered his internal drives. He must learn to control and discipline the disastrous passions that would lead him to folly and ruin. He must conquer inordinate vanity and anger, self-deception, fear and inhibition. These are the crude uh, ores of his being. He must smelt these ores in the fire of life, forge his own sword, temper it, sharpen it against the hard, abrasiveness of experience. Only then is he fit to bear arms in the larger battle. There is no substitute for courage, and the victory is, the high is to the high-hearted. He will have nothing to do with the asceticism or the excesses of weakness. Self-expression will be his watchword. A self-expression tempered, keen and strong. And first he must know how to rule himself. And only then can he cope with the economic pressures which are employed by the institutions and corporations or the political pressures employed by the demagogues. He may then find himself in a difficult predicament. If he calls himself a liberal, he 
discovers that he is supposedly committed to a policy of accommodation with the Russian government. And if he opposes a a pro-Soviet policy, he is welcome to the camp of the Catholic Church and and the Manufacturers Association. If he eschews both camps, he is condemned for lack of principle, and if he should support the rights of the working man or majority and racial groups, then he's a red. And if at the same time he believes in constitutional government and individual rights, he is also a pacifist. And, uh, no, wait, no, wait a minute, he's also a fascist, <laughs> excuse me. Many liberals are familiar with this situation, but few seem to have deduced the conclusion. The difficulty lies in the confusion of rights of the individual in relation to the responsibilities of the state. It is a sad comment on our mentality that the social reformer subscribes to total regimentation, while the alleged individual pre uh, propagandizes for total irresponsibility. The rights of the individual be can be clearly defined. His responsibilities via the responsibilities of the state can be clearly defined. The individual's rights end where the next man's begin. It is the function of the state to ensure equal rights to all but in the absence of a social devotion to the true principles of liberalism, positivists have usurped its name and even its phrases in order to propagandize for their various totalitarianisms. And this process has been aided by the faction of pseudo-liberalism, which believes that all opinion contrary to its own must be suppressed. As I write, allegedly liberal groups are agitating for the denial of public forums to those they call fascists. Americanism societies are striving for the suppression of communist or red literature and speech. Religious groups backed by the publicity-conscious press are constantly campaigning for the prohibition of art and literature, which, as if by divine prerogative, they term indecent, immoral, or dangerous. It would seem that all these organizations are devoted to one common purpose, the suppression of freedom. Their sincerity is no excuse. History is a bloody testament that sincerity can achieve atrocities which cynicism could hardly conceive of. Each of these groups is engaged in a, in a fanatic, frantic struggle to sell out, betray, or destroy the freedom which was their birthright and which alone assured their present existence. Freedom is a two-edged sword. He who believes that the absolute rightness of his belief is an authority to suppress the rights and opinions of his fellows cannot be a liberal. Liberalism cannot exist where it violates its own principles. It cannot exist where the emergent where the emergency monger or the utopia salesman can obtain a suspension of rights whether temporary or permanent. 
Liberty cannot be suppressed in order to defend liberalism. If we are to achieve a democracy, the rights of individuals and the responsibilities of states must be openly defined and ardently defended. It is inconceivable that men who fought and died in a war against totalitarianism did not know what they fought for. It seems a fantastic joke that the institutions they believed in and defended have turned like a nightmare into a home into homegrown tyrannies. A generation went down in blood and agony to make the world safe. But the evil that makes the world unsafe still goes undefeated, plotting new sacrifices of misery and blood. The guilt lies not entirely with the warmongers, the plutocrats, and the demagogues. If a people permit exploitation and regimentation in any name, they deserve their slavery. A tyrant does not make his tyranny. It is made possible by his people and not otherwise. Much of our modern thought is characterized by pretense and evasion by appeals to ultimate authorities which are non-liberal, superstitious, and reactionary. Often we are not aware of these thought processes. We accept ideas, authorities, catchphrases, and conditions without troubling to think or investigate, and yet these things may conceal terrible traps. We accept them as right because they have a surface-level agreement with the things in which we believe, and we welcome the man who is for liberalism, against communism, without troubling to inquire what else is he for or against. In our blindness, we leave ourselves open to exploitation, regimentation, and war. Tumultuous developments in science and society demand a new clarity of thought, a re-examination, and a restatement of principles. It is not sufficient that a principle is sacred because it is time-worn. It must be examined, tried, and tested in the crucible of the present need. In our law, in our social and international relations, we are guilty of a myriad of barbarisms and superstitions. <coughs> These injustices continue and proliferate because we have become used to them and we have lost our freedom through tolerance and inertia. The principle we have developed herein is simple. The liberty of the individual is the foundation of civilization. No true civilization is possible without this liberty, and no state, national or international, is stable in its absence. The proper relation between individual liberty on the one hand and social responsibility on the other is the balance which will assure a stable society. The only other road to social equilibrium demands the total annihilation of individuality. And there is no further evasion of nature's immemorial ultimatum. Change or perish, but the choice of change is ours. That is the opening chapter of Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. 
And quite frankly, it is just as valid today, or perhaps even more valid, than when it was originally written in 1946. And I only wish that Jack Parsons had lived he had long enough to fully realize his potential as a philosopher and a, and, a, and perhaps even I hate to say it a political leader because uh, that we, we we really really we we very much need uh, I think we very much need this this perspective. And frankly, to tell you the truth, um, what I'm doing, I'm trying to find the second chapter, the next chapter. The Sword and the Serpent, by Frater Balerian, OTO, edited by Frater Aliene. That was my magical name in those days. And uh, this is my this is my opening blurb to this uh, this chapter. In the second chapter of this epic essay, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, entitled The Sword and the Serpent. Frater Balerian considers the phenomenon of sex going beyond the Freudian premise that the sex urge is the primal factor in individual human psychology. He suggests that it is also the major force behind social relations. We, he develops the disturbing concept, perhaps after Reich, that the Christian church made sex a sin in order to enslave the Western world. In the late 1940s, when this was written, sex education in high schools was an explosive issue. Abortions were absolutely illegal. The pill was unknown, and citizens were jailed for carnal knowledge of each other. And a few years ago, we thought such vicious laws were forever behind us. But now, powerful forces e.g. the Right to Life movement, are working in the same insidious ways that Frater Balerian describes to bring back our sexual dark ages. Again, his words from, the, from 30 years ago have a striking relevance to conditions today. His call for women's liberation is so clearly uh, tuned to the true spirit of that movement as it uh, recently emerged that the title of prophet might be appropriate. Neo-pagans who, who carefully read his words will be amazed. Our, and our next installment will be The Sword and the Spirit, expounding the godliness of man in the highest romantic sense. Watch for it. Okay. So, The Sword and the Serpent. Of all the strange and terrible powers among which we move unknowingly, sex is the most potent. Conceived in the orgasm of birth, we burst forth in agony and ecstasy from the center of creation. Time and again, we return to that fountain, lose ourselves in the fires of being, and unite for a moment with the eternal force and return renewed and refreshed as from the miraculous sacrament. And then, at the last, our life closes in the orgasm of death. Sex, typified as love, is at the heart of every mystery, at the center of every secret. It is this splendid and subtle serpent that twines about the cross and coils in the bloom of the mystic rose.
The sexual perversity of Christianity becomes obvious when it is realized that the Holy Ghost, the Sophia, is feminine. The very tetragrammaton, yod heh wow means father, mother, son, daughter. It asserts the splendor of the biological order. How can life proceed from a strictly masculine creation? What miracle could possibly be superior to the miracle of copulation, conception, and gestation? In the corrupt and demonic Jehovah, the priesthood blasphemed nature in order to perpetuate a tyrannical and superstitious patriarchy. Women, woman was insulted and affronted with the culminy of the immaculate conception. <coughs> then, by this mystery mongering, a premium was placed on moral and spiritual sterility. This sublimation of the sex urge has been made the basis of the power of the church and the source of much of the psychosis rampant in the modern world. It has been asserted that the church has been a champion of progress and freedom. Nothing could be more fallacious. Organized Christianity has been inevitably allied with tyranny, reaction, and persecution. No organized dogma can contribute to progress except by occasional accident. The Church's main contribution has been unintentionally to foment revolt against its bigotry. It could hardly be otherwise with an organization founded on a double fallacy, the sin of sex and the, infalli and the infallibility of man, of a man. No religion can hope to, be, to benefit humanity while it practices and preaches love and, it, and reviles the root of love. Anyone hoping to understand and cope with human relations must understand both the importance and the overemphasis of sex in society. Sexual concepts and symbolism underlie all the world's religions. As I mentioned above, sublimated sex has been the source of power uh, for the Christian church. Sex and sex neurosis are fundamental factors in the attitude of modern man. These three facts give sex a place of prime importance in our liberal examination of society. Our sex attitudes are largely characterized by pretense. The majority of people under 50 today have, at one time or another, engaged in what is termed illicit intercourse, and yet we pretend publicly that we have not done so. And some of us go so far as to state that we don't do it, and never would do it, and disapprove of the criminal types who do. Policemen arrest and judges convict persons discovered in pursuit of which they themselves indulge in. And the enjoyment of a natural urge is defined as crime. And young persons thus enjoying the urge and in the wonder of its beginning are burdened with a sense of guilt and shame. And they are classed with the common criminals. Now why is this? 
The shameful answer is that back in the Middle Ages, under conditions of squalor, ignorance, superstition, and oppression, the sex taboo became a prime instrument of power in the arsenal of a band of brigands known as the Christian Church. And this is the reason that young people in love are, con are classed as criminals. Venereal disease thrives and abortionists prosper as an inevitable result. The superstition which fostered this shameful condition is no longer absolutely dominant, but the institution that promoted the belief that the human body was obscene and that love was indecent and that woman was forever made foul by original sin remains to mold our thoughts and shape our laws. It is most significant that the spiritual and psychic inheritors of that church, both Catholic and Protestant, vigorously and effectively oppose birth control, venereal disease education, divorce law, reform, etc., anything which would limit the power of their weapon. If the Christians enforce these taboos only among their believers, they would be within their rights. Man has the right to any personal stupidity, whatever, however monstrous it may seem. But this is not their principal concern. They seek to impose this nonsense on everybody. By every method of legislative, moral, and economic intimidation at their command. And the success of their efforts can be judged by the reflection of such attitudes in the press, the radio, the motion picture industry, and our legal statutes. True to fascist form, the censor utilizes his moral victory to impose political and social censorship in all fields. Bigots and demagogues invoke the divine right of religion and of morality in order to gain extraordinary power. Freedom of religion and of the press should not afford a justification for giant propaganda campaigns to suppress freedom. We must not only have freedom of religion, we must also have freedom from religion. The concept that sex in art, literature, and life is subject to criminal law is based entirely on this superstitious sexual taboo. The ceremonial power of the church, the state, and the established press is founded solely on the assumption that the taboo of a particular religion should always have universal legal sanction. This sanction, once established, is then subtly expanded to imply that all other dogmas of that religion are now unwritten law of the land. Such a religion, always respectable and conservative, forms alliances with fascist and capitalist cliques and thus gaining a privileged position from which to persecute liberalism in all its forms. Superstition, taboo, reaction, and fascism augment one another most effectively. The fact that one of, the, of totalitarianism persecutes, that one type of totalitarianism persecutes another type, or appears to do so, is hardly a palliative. Modern man must recognize the source and nature of his sexual taboos and discredit them in the light of truth. Only thus can he achieve sanity and sex and healthy outlook in life in general. In our society, early marriages 
are often prevented by economic considerations. Therefore, premarital sexual relations are natural and often desirable. Contraceptive techniques available to any intelligent young person uh, form a, uh, from a drugist or a doctor can minimize the problem of venereal disease and unwanted pregnancies. The development of sexual technique, the determination of qualifications of one's partner, and the ratification of, youth, of the youthful urge to experiment all, all assure a far better and more lasting stable marriage than one begun in ignorance and prudery. In marriage itself, the social contract is binding. Property acquired by the joint efforts of the husband and the wife belong to both jointly, in California especially. And where, uh, where any two persons have pledged their love together, no outsider has the right to interfere. Either party is justified in resisting each such interference by force if necessary. But neither party, whether the relation be in or out of wedlock, has any right or justification other than, over the love, the affection, or the sexual favors of another for longer than that person desires. Where children are concerned, a separation presents a serious problem. Broken homes are hard on children, but a loveless and bitter home is worse. No state can assure a child the affection of its parents, but it can guarantee his physical welfare and security, thus ensuring him against any of the frustrations of childhood and adolescence which develop into unstable and maladjusted adult behavior. The laws against mutually agreeable sex expression must be repealed, together with the laws prohibiting nudism, birth control, and censorship. We must emphatically deny that love is criminal and that the body is indecent. We must affirm the beauty and the dignity and, and the joyousness and even the humor of sex. Indeed, there are obscene uh, things in light uh, and in darkness, things that desire destruction. The exploitation of women and poor wages, the shameful degradation of minorities by the little lice that call themselves members of a superior race, and the deliberate machinations uh, toward war. Nowhere among these genuine obscenities is there a place uh, for the love shared between a man and a woman. There are sins, but love is not one of them. And yet, of all the things that have been called sins, love has been the most punished and the most persecuted. Of all the beauties we know, and the springtime of love is closest to paradise. And as all things pass, no love passes too soon. This most exquisite tender of human emotions, this little moment of eternity, should be free and unrestrained. It should not be bought and sold and chained and restricted until lovers caught in the maelstrom of economics and laws are hounded like criminals. What end is served? And who profits by such cruelty? Only the priests and the lawyers. Let us adhere to a strict morality where the rights and happiness of our fellow man is concerned. Let us call our true sins by their right names and expiate them accordingly. But let our lovers go free. If we are to achieve civilization and insanity, we must institute 
an educational program in lovemaking, birth control, and disease prevention, and above all, we must root out the barbaric and vicious concepts of shamefulness and indecency in sex, exposing the motives and the methods of their, pro of their proponents. Happy are the parents who, as a result of sexual experimenting, are well-mated, taking joy in each other's passion, seeing beauty in their nakedness and their and not fearing to expose their bodies or their or the bodies of their children, and they would never shame their children for their natural sexual superiority or curiosity. Jesus, who said who was said to be the Son of God, told the fallen woman, Go and sin no more. But I, who am a man, say to you, who have given your body for the need of a man's body, and who have given your love freely for his spirit's sake, be blessed in the name of man. And if any God deny you for this, I will deny that God. The ancients, being simple and without original sin, saw God in the act of love, and therein they saw a great mystery, a sacrament revealing the bounty and the beauty of the force that made man and the stars, and thus they worshipped. Poor ignorant old pagans, how we have progressed, and what was most sacred to them we see as a dirty joke. And from this sordid joke we have played on ourselves. Only woman herself can redeem us. She has been the ignominious butt of the joke, the target of malice and arrogance, and the scapegoat for masculine inferiority and guilt. She alone can redeem us from our crucifixion and castration. Only woman, of and by herself, can strike through the foolish frustration of the, of the advertiser's label. She must elevate her strong, free, and splendid image to take her place in the sun as an individual, a companion, and mate, fit for and demanding no less than true men. Let there be an end to the inhibition and an end to pretense. Let us discover what we are and be what we are, honestly and unashamedly. The rabbit has speed to recompense his fear, and the panther strength to assuage his hunger. There is room for both, even though the rabbit would probably prefer a world of rabbits, dull and overpopulated, all traits are useful, wrath, fear, lust, and even laziness, if they are balanced by strength and intelligence. If we lie about things we call our weakness and sins, if we say that this is evil and that is wrong, denying that which faults could be part of us, they will grow crooked in the dark. But when we have time out in the open, admitting them, facing them, and accepting them, then we will be ashamed to leave any vestige of them secret, to turn crippled and twisted, 
Fear can sharpen our wits against adversity. Anger can strengthen. Anger and strength can be welded into a sword against tyrants both within and without. Lust can be trained to be the strong and subtle servant of love and art. It is not necessary to deny anything. It is only necessary to know ourselves. Then we will naturally seek that which is needful to our being and reject that which is alien to it. This can only be done by experience. Our significance does not lie in the extent to which we resemble others or in the extent to which we differ from them. It lies within our ability to be ourselves, and this may well be the entire object of life, to discover ourselves, our meaning. This does not come in a sudden burst of illumination. It is a constant process which continues so long as we are truly alive. The process cannot continue unobstructed unless we are free to undergo all experiences and willing to participate in all ex existence. Then the significant questions are not, is it right or is it good, but rather, how does it feel and what does it mean? Ultimately, these are the only questions that can approach truth but they cannot be asked in the absence of freedom. There was a time when these questions were whispered in the shadow of the stake. That Christian instrument of conversion is not sanctioned at present, but the will and the malice remain and will continue until the power of the superstition-mongering tyrants is finally broken. Meanwhile, religious dogmatism continues to support the sexual jealousness of neurotic parents for their children and neurotic marriage partners for their mates, and it is not because of economic desperation and greed that crime and war wash over the world in ever-mounting waves. It is only necessary to look back on the Middle Ages when St. Vitus dance, epidemic flagellation, the witchcraft persecutions, all spawned out of Christian guilt and shame swept the Western world. It was the tone set by these fearful events, reinforcing the divine right of reactionary monarchs, that produced the liberal revolution of the 18th century. But the root, the sexual taboo, was unfortunately not destroyed. It remained to revitalize the power of religion over the new bourgeoisie. The frenetic hatred of Jews and Negroes, symbols of illicit sexual freedom, and the lust toward the blood and fire baths of warfare are the very aberrations of sexual frustration. They are the nightmares of the soul in hell of guilty desire, laboring like madmen over their instruments of destruction in order to destroy the world which has denied them satisfaction. It is only in the unobstructed exercise of sexual function by a generation trained from youth in contraception and the techniques of love that it will be possible to achieve mature social relations. In this childish folly of sexual possession, 
Each man and each woman hates and fears every other man and woman as a potential despoiler or inhibitor of his sex life. The marriage relation is turned into a gruesome joke by the ever-present specters of jealousy and suspicion. It is possible that the application of two old axioms, that you love one another and that you do unto others as you would have others do unto you, might go a long way in helping us solve our sexual problems. The application of these maxims in sexual relations is easy and pleasant, and if firmly established, the principles might spread to other areas of human intercourse. The sexual revolution will not produce any instantaneous paradise, nor will it be accomplished without tears. The way to racial maturity is long and painful, but it is at least possible to attain the maturity and richness that comes with full and satisfactory sexual expression in private life. It may be that other considerations become more important in one's later years, but I would hesitate to say what age to set the mark. It does not seem possible to grow old gracefully unless one has known something of a graceful youth. Well, that concludes the second chapter of Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. And re realizing that that was written in 1946, when we were still very much under the blue laws and the and the uh, all of the various restrictions that that Jack is talking about, uh, you can understand, I think, why why his vehemence in that regard. But we actually did accomplish a great deal of that of that uh, that. Plea, I'm calling it a prophecy. Let's call it a plea for sexual liberation. Now, certainly a very eloquent plea, and we did. I, I want to point out the. I don't know whether Jack had been reading or following the um, the work of Reich, Wilhelm Reich, but uh, Wilhelm Reich theorized that that um, sexual repression was very definitely the the weapon of all various different forms of tyranny. And <laughs> the Soviet Union, I think, is a perfect example of this. They, When the Bolsheviks first took power, they, they tried free love, and they had, uh, they, were, they even nationalized women. They said all the men in Russia could have any woman they wanted because they were all national property. And it was, they, they had a, 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 they just did went completely on this free love idea. But then the gross national product dropped considerably, and and they all of a sudden they realized, oh my gosh, we can't do this, and we're we're atheists, and and so we we can't we we can't uh, establish religious morality anymore. We've gotten rid of the church, so what are we going to do? So they created state morality, and then the Soviet Union became more puritanical than the United States because they knew that they had to control that they had to they had to establish this control over over sex in order to uh, 
in order to control the people, in order to have an economy. And and so literally they became more puritanical than we were. And up until the Soviet Union dissolved in the 90s, they, they continued this. So uh, what Jack is saying here is, is was absolutely true. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to agree with all of what he says, and I'm not sure I agree with everything he says, but then uh, the, the essence of it was certainly certainly there. And, um, and it certainly was a prediction of what was to come. Now, um, next week, we will continue and uh, with uh, Chapter 3 and, and Chapter 4. And uh, I urge you to um, go on Amazon and order the book. Um, two different versions that, uh, that they have. Uh, the, the 2001 is, I think, perhaps the best one. And uh, and and this is this is really uh, as I think you can gather from tonight's broadcast. This is this is important. This is important reading. And it's important uh, and certainly important in the history of modern magic. And and I I think that uh, you'll find that next week we'll have two more exciting chapters for you. So until then. Uh, Good magic, and uh, and and for those of you in the witchcraft community, blessed be.